the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The creepiest podcast I have listened to in last year. The first season took place in the city I used to live in, Dallas, Texas, and its subject was a doctor. And the name of that podcast is Dr. Death. Oh, because it tells the story of a person who esteemed themselves in medical school and yet somehow skated through residency with doing the minimal amount of expected, expected work in that season at a medical school which will remain nameless. And then gets to Dallas, establishes himself as a, a doctor of great renown and skill. And yet for whatever reason, it's not quite clear, when he was, despite the fact of being entrusted with people's care to come and correct them of an injury or a congenital malformation or whatever, by his hand, they were harmed. Some were paralyzed at his hand. Some died as a consequence of his malpractice. The problem, though, was not his scalpel. The problem was in whose hands that scalpel lie. He'd been entrusted to bring healing, to correct things that were wrong, and instead the way he used it, either by negligence or malice, he ended up bringing, doing far more harm than anyone could have ever imagined. And now he sits in prison for his crimes. It's a very sobering tale of a man meant and commissioned to work health actually working harm. We are in the downhill slope of listening to Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And that sermon has all been out to show us what is the good life in God and before God. What is that life that has become convinced that God is for them? And so for them that he would love them so. But what he's out to do in that sermon is to show us what is a picture of health? What is that life in God that flourishes? Not as a series of, of habits to form in order to prove something to God. Not as a, a sort of tasks and ethics to embrace in order to sort of check off your conscience and say, good, did that, great, have a t-shirt about it. His life, his sermon is out to show us what health looks like in God. And the way Jesus does that from beginning to end of the sermon is to offer to us words of correction. Correction that is out to bring us life. Correction that is out to illumine our understanding of life. Correction that is out to show us what a life in health looks like. But here on the downhill slope of the sermon, Jesus realizes that when it comes to words of correction, therein lies a danger for anyone who's listening to him. Because correction is only as good as in whose hands that correction lies. And therefore, in these first six verses of chapter 7, Jesus is out to tell us three things about correction. One, that there has to be a rain on it. Two, that nevertheless there is a distinct role for it. And three, that there are rails upon which that correction must run. There has to be a rain on it. There's an unequivocal role for it. And there are essential rails upon which that correction must run. And so we're going to hear those three things from these six verses. And if you're able to stand, we're starting in Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 1. 
Matthew chapter 7, starting verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give to dogs what is holy. And do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. This is the corrective word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. If we're going to understand these words in context that are, yes, very corrective, very pointed, very in your face, we've got to get a running start. And Ben helped us last week in preaching the, pre- the passage prior to it in the text on anxiety about all sorts of things in which you might give your affections and your intentions to all sorts of things, like all sorts of kingdoms that you might want to live for. And yet when you live for them and they end up not producing what you thought, what is it that you receive or end up experiencing all sorts of anxiety. And therefore, at the end of that passage, you heard Ben preach through that most important text in chapter 6, verse 34. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. What is that way that will prevail, though kingdoms and, and, and communities and monarchs and, and republics shall fail? What shall endure that which accords with his kingdom? The kingdom that Jesus has come to usher in by his own blood and through his own word. And what is that way of life that will prevail in that kingdom? That is the life of righteousness. A righteousness that is a right standing with God and understanding that he is your God and that he has come to make you his child and a righteousness that you then are compelled to walk in yourself You do not embrace that righteousness because you're out to prove something to God. You walk in that righteousness because God has already proved his love for you. And therefore, Jesus is out to show us by words of correction to correct our understanding of what is that kingdom. To correct our understanding of what is that righteousness. But he knows who he's talking to. He knows our frame. He knows we are but dust. But he also knows this when he's come to talk to us about what an understanding of righteousness can do to us. When you and I have come to understand what is that kingdom, what is that righteousness, what we are in danger of is letting that understanding devolve into a swagger. A swagger of self-righteousness. A swagger of looking down your nose to anybody whom you think just doesn't get it. And there are two kinds of people in this world. There are those who get it, and there are those who want you to get it. And Jesus is out to awaken us to that concern. Because when you understand the righteousness as he has outlined outlined it, there's a danger. And so let me give you a really silly illustration of what that's like. You saw a Christmas story a long time ago, and you know that Ralphie wants what? A Red Ryder BB gun, right? With a compass in the stock. Which means that apparently whenever you're out to exterminate squirrels, you want to always know where Magnetic North is. I don't know. But there it is. 
and he longs for it, and he pines for it, and he puts his face up against the department store window to, to sort of uh, idolize it, right? And he tells his parents about it, and he tells his teachers about it, and with every warning, they say, you're going to shoot your eye out. And he's going, no, I won't. And he longs for it. And finally, Christmas Day, he gets it. And what does he get? Oh, it's more than a gun. It's more than BBs. It's glory. It's the opportunity to fulfill every fantasy, power, and prowess that he could ever imagine. There's power in it. And what happens? He goes out in his pajamas in the sub-freezing temperatures with only his slippers on, and he uses that gun, and he puts up a metal backstop to the target, and he fires it off, and the BB ricochets off it, hits him in the glasses, breaks his glasses, and he learns the power of that BB gun. And then he learns the power of what it does in him, because then he goes inside and tells a bald-faced lie to his mother. Oh, power. In having that power that he's longed for and finally gets, what happens? He becomes a danger to himself and to others. And Jesus is saying, in a similar way, when you come to understand God's righteousness in a certain way, there is a power, and it lies there is a danger that lies in him. It's not the righteousness itself. It's in whose hands that righteousness lies, so to speak. And therefore, Jesus is out to tell us here on the front end of this sermon, or on this passage, that when it comes to words of correction about righteousness, you've got to put a rein on it. You've got to hold it back, Bussy. And he says that straight up in the very first verse. Judge not, lest you, that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. That words of correction that mean, mean love and, and mean harm or mean health for you and, and illuminating you to what is right, that therein lies a danger if you put that sense of correction or that impulse to correction in the wrong hands. Let me give you another example of what that looks like and its danger. Do you know who is brilliantly capable of noticing another's errors well? With all due respect, kids, you are. You are awesome at that. You are awesome at, it's like, you, it's like if you had brought a, a fire, if you brought a smoke alarm to a campfire, the slightest whiff of smoke. Whoop, 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 whoop. Did you see that? Did you see what he did? Kids are awesome at nailing the other for what they did wrong. What they're not as good at is reflecting upon their own errors in a similar vein before they call out somebody else. And, you know, we adults don't have a problem with that. We've all grown out of that. It's a real feature of adulthood. We ne- Oh, wait, sorry. I'm sorry. Parallel universe. We all have this problem. Kids just are better at showing it. We're just better at concealing it and coming up with high-sounding words to give the impression that we really know what we're doing when it comes to words of correction. We all have a problem with it. We're excellent about noting the problem in somebody else, but we're really bad about the blindness that we're all susceptible to when it comes to our own faults and our own errors. And Jesus is saying, given that condition of the human heart, there's got to be a rein. You've got to put a rein on words of correction, less the damage that you do. And what does that rain sound like? It's what you heard in verses 3 and 4. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's the log in your own eye? There's a blindness that we're all susceptible to, and there's got to be a rain on our impulse to correction. And what is that rain? A little bit of self-reflection. 
a little bit of consideration of your own heart's condition and what you're capable of. And if the case may be that you're maybe tempted to call out in somebody else what you yourself have struggled with, maybe it's a little reflection on your own path of repentance, of turning away from what you regretted then and what you now see regrettable in another. That's the rain you have to put on your impulse to correction. Why? Why do I have to do that? Why, why can't I just, I see it, I'm the umpire, that's a ball, that's a strike, I'm calling it like I see it, boom. Why do you have to reflect upon yourself first? Because it's the only honest thing to do. Honest in terms of walking with integrity. What does integrity mean? That your speech matches your action. Your heart matches your will. That's walking integrity as opposed to being disintegrated. What you do is not what you say. What you speak is not what you really feel. That's a disintegrated way. Jesus is talking about walking with integrity, to speak with honesty. In verse 1, he talks about do not judge. That's the Greek word krino, judge, krino. In verse 5, he says, you hypocrite. Hypocrite is the word hupokrino. Judgment, krino. Hypocrite, hupokrino. What's up with that? Why that sudden little connection between those two words? I'll tell you. The original meaning of hypocrite meant that you were an actor. That was your vocation. You were an actor. Acting, thank you. No, no, thank you. That's acting. You take on a persona that is not yourself. You step into a face, a profile, a way of being that is not you, but you demonstrate it as if it were you. That's what a hypocrite was. That's what an actor was. Jesus is saying, guess what? You don't put a rein on your impulse to correction. You don't reflect upon your own condition. You're being an actor. You're engaging in stagecraft. It's a false face. And it's a danger. The only honest thing you can do is to put a rein on it through that kind of reflection, that kind of consideration, that kind of repentance. The other reason is, it's the only loving thing you can do. You know, some days, why you're bent on correcting others? It's because you're having a bad day. It's because you're angry about something, or you're bitter about something, or you regret something, but you don't want to admit it, and because they've offended you in some way, you are on a warpath. Flannery O'Connor said this a long time ago. Conviction without experience makes for harshness. You don't bring your world into the moment in which you are capable, or maybe it's a timely time to offer correction, the best you can hope for in coming off is just harsh, not loving. That's it. That's all you'll do. Conviction without experience makes for harshness. You know what captures that, that sense of, of what happens when you, when you are failing to put a rein on correction? I want to show you a clip from a movie that came out about 10 years ago called Doubt. And it takes place in the 1950s back east at a, at a, at a parochial school. And one of the priests, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, is being accused of, of, um, of mistreatment or of, some accusations have been made against him. And the one spearheading the effort at correction is another faculty member, um, a nun who's played by Meryl Streep. And here in this moment, you kind of see a, a facing off of her um, speaking of the correction and him 
answering her concern, and all you're going to do is just feel the tension in the room. So listen to this scene. Have you never done anything wrong? I have. No mortal sin. Yes. And? I, I, I confessed it, Father. And whatever I have done, I have left in the healing hands of my confessor, as have you. We are the same. the same. In the span of seconds, you see someone who is breaking down, considering their own condition for just a moment, and they're softening in the face of one whom she has been accusing or trying to offer a word of correction. She softens, and then when he says to her, we're the same, what happens? She hardens herself, and she, I mean, it's cinematographically significant there that she's backing away from him. No, 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 we're not the same. Jesus is warning of a way of thinking of the righteousness that he has outlined in this sermon and beginning to use it in such a way that you begin to think of yourself as constitutionally different from anybody else that you might be bringing a word of correction to. That's the danger. And he's asking us to reflect that there but for the grace of God go you. If you don't allow that recognition to flood your brain, then the best you will do is be harsh and hardened. And you know who perhaps is the most susceptible to that kind of practice? Me and my kind. The clerical class, the, the, the clergy. I reread a, a short book by a theologian named Helmut Thalicki recently. He, he wrote it to those who were just entering seminary. It's called a, a Book for Young Theologians. And he says, what's true of every person that goes to theological school is that every point, at some point, they go through something called theological puberty. When you're in a choir and you hit puberty, it's the responsibility of the director not to let you sing in public. Because you will screech, man. And he uses that example of anybody that's going through theological training, that when you go through theological puberty, it is the responsibility of that seminary not to let you preach in public because of the damage that you can do. And friends, let me just say to you, I am guilty of this sin, and I have done it from pulpits, and I'm not sure I haven't done it with you yet. There's power, there's a palpable sense of power when it comes to thinking about righteousness and offering a word of correction. And if you're not aware of that power and its temptation, then you can do a lot more harm than you could ever bring health. And then the scalpel is a weapon. Jesus is saying if it comes to a word of correction, there has to be a rain on it. But not a muzzle. A rein, but not a muzzle. 
Because not only is he telling us that there's a warning when it comes to words of correction, he's also trying to tell us something else, that there's a role for it, that there is a place for correction. Now, next to Psalm 23, perhaps the most famous verse that people inside and outside the church know is what you heard in verse 1. Do not judge or you will be judged. Everybody loves that one because it's the trump card. Somebody comes in your face, starts calling you out on something. Hey, what's the word we all hear around these days? Hey, don't judge. Who are you? Back off. Step aside. Keep clear. You're off base. That's the, that's the card we'd like to play. Uh, T-Bone Burnett is a, a famous songwriter, and he's just written a musical to honor Roy Rogers and Dale Evans, and it's called um, Happy Trails. And in one of the songs, the first line of the song is, everybody wants to know the truth, but nobody wants to hear it. There's our world. Oh yeah, I'm going to fight for justice and integrity and dignity, but if somebody calls me out, hey, don't judge. Friends, do you realize if you adopt the don't judge mentality for the rest of your life, how much danger you're doing to yourself? You don't know it all. I don't know it all. I need somebody to call me out. Jesus is saying there is a rain. There has to be a rain on our words of correction. And yes, it is true that, that conviction without experience leads to harshness. But Flannery Connor is not dissing on conviction, and neither is Jesus. There has to be a rain on our word of correction so that we would be humble before that, so we would not be a danger. But he's also here to say that when you put a rain on your word of conviction, when your word of correction, you actually equip yourself to speak a truer word of correction. When you begin to reflect upon your own condition, your own struggle, your own life, your own condition, that is what affords you an even greater sense of credibility and persuasiveness when the time for offering a word of correction is due. Such that you encounter somebody that's, that's caught up in looking at pornography, I mean, you can roll your eyes at them and go, I cannot believe you were falling for that smut. Or you can say to them, I get how you could get caught up in something that is so powerful and the way it works on the brain. I get it. Or if somebody ends up in massive debt, you can look at them and go, well, you know, you, know, you made your bed, you're going to sleep in it. Good luck getting out of that. Or you can recognize that you live in a culture that is premised on the idea that happiness is found in having and therefore, the great seduction to which we are all susceptible is to max out our credit cards because that's where we'll find our joy. Bring that into your consideration. That will temper the way you speak. Or if somebody says to you or comes to you with, yeah, the marriage is just sort of falling apart, you can look at them with derision and go, you know, you should have jumped on that a lot earlier. Or you can say, yeah, I, I totally get how marriages can get into ruts. I totally understand how you can end up learning to coexist with somebody under the same roof and you live as one pastor once put it, like a butler living with a maid. You bring your story and your struggle and your condition into the opportunity to speak words of correction, and then, then you will see the role for it. Because yes, the best that conviction without experience can do is lead to harshness, but look, how does Jesus usher in his kingdom by his blood. But if you listen to him on the Sermon on the Mount, he also ushers in his kingdom by what? Words of correction. 
And unless you're willing to give it and to receive it, you will not know that health. And that is why I had us read that Old Testament passage when Nathan is calling out David. When Nathan goes to David and tells him that little awful parable that incites David's righteous indignation about that storyline until Nathan says, you're the man. That's you. You, you, have, you have participated in adultery, conspiracy, and murder within a matter of weeks. You're the man. Why does Nathan go there? Because he gets a thrill out of putting David in his place? No, it's out of love and of commitment to the righteousness of God to those who are entrusted with leadership. Jesus speaks with love and pointedly, and therefore he's trying to tell us there is a role for it. And therefore in the Psalms, in Psalm 141, verse 5, you hear the psalmist say quite candidly, Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. There are times when we must be shook. And we need somebody with the love and the courage to shake us. Many years ago, when my children were much younger, and we were living in a very old home in Dallas, I came home to find my house a wreck. I experienced what the physicists call entropy, where everything is going from order to chaos. Now, usually physicists speak of it as that a process that takes hundreds of thousands of years. In my home, it took a couple of hours. So I come home to find the house a wreck, the two children running around, yelling like banshees, my wife looking rather haggard, and what is my response? To see only the mess and to say not a word, but to hem and to haw, and to begin to pick up things and put them back in their place with a certain <sighs> in my voice to make sure that everybody heard that. <sighs> and then my wife, detecting that in me with all the grace that I'm accustomed to hearing from her, said this, honey, sometimes I wish you would be more thankful than helpful. That cut me to the core before it was off her lip. That my desire to be helpful was actually not a helpfulness at all, but just really a, an inward kind of unspoken criticism. And what it actually lacked was any sort of thankfulness that my children were still alive that day and that they weren't cursing my name in public. Sometimes I wish you would be more thankful than helpful. It was a needed word I needed to hear. And if she hadn't said it, I'm on the same path. There's a role for a word of correction. So long as it's offered in love. And if you think that Jesus is talking out of both sides of his mouth here, he's saying one thing and not doing and saying another and, and saying something else, all you gotta do is go to the, the, the most bewildering text, the verse in the text, and that's the last verse. He said this here in chapter six, verse six. He says, Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. What? Okay, look, um, dogs in that day, or in the New Testament, do not come off well in the scriptures. Okay? There was no swoopy dog, and let's go on a walk together. Dogs were the ones that ate the dead carcasses everywhere, and then came and licked you. Like, ah, 
keep them at bay. So dogs do not come off well. So dogs is definitely a pejorative comment here. He's saying this. You have a great story to tell and a great song to sing and a great truth to share, but there are some moments in which it would not be timely or prudent for you to get it out. And therefore, to always operate on the pushiness factor is to forget your place, yourself, and the message. Jesus is making a discernment in when to speak and when to hold off. And you might think that's really harsh, but friends, you and I both know that there are moments in which you might want to share whatever your truth is with somebody, but you know what's going to come. Not just a wall, but a wall with all sorts of weapons. Jesus is saying there's a time for everything. To everything there is a season. When it comes to words of correction, it requires a rein on it. When it comes to words of correction, it requires to understand its role for it, both in times to speak it when it's proper and the wisdom to know when to be quiet. Now that's great. Those are the principles. And principles are great for us to nod our heads and, you know, stroke our chins, but principles are made to be broken unless there's a power behind it or unless there's a real motivation for it. And that's where Jesus is going to land his plane. I need more than you telling me, Jesus. i got to be careful about my words of correction because most of the time I'll just back off entirely. Or I need you to tell me there's a role for it, and then I really will back off entirely forever. So where do I find that power? What are the rails upon which the impulse to offer a word of correction must run? In that same song by T-Bone Burnett, he kind of hints at where we are in this world and kind of hints at what we need if we're ever going to speak with care and humility and courage. He says this, everybody wants to be forgiven, but nobody wants to confess. Everybody wants to be free, but no one can pay the price. What T-Bone Burnett is hinting at is the thing in song and story we speak of every week. What are the rails upon which correction must run if you were to do so with humility, with the rain on it, but to do so with love and courage when you understand a role for it. You need a truth that speaks to your condition. And that condition is spoken of by somebody who knew not a thing about country and western music, but only about philosophy about 200 years ago, and his name was Soren Kierkegaard. And he explains to us what is the most unique part about Christianity when he put it this way. What precisely is profound in Christianity is that Christ is both our atoner and our judge. Not that one is our atoner and another our judge, for then we would nevertheless come to be judged, but that the atoner and the judge are the same. With all due respect to Buddha, to Confucius, to Moses, to Muhammad, to Vishnu, to Krishna, you name the deity, you name the prophet. What is different about Jesus is that he is the judge who was judged in our place. And by the judgment that fell on him, we are made his child. We belong to him. Everybody wants to be forgiven, but nobody wants to confess. Jesus confesses his love for us, and by his blood we are forgiven. Everybody wants to be free, but nobody can pay the price. 
We all want to be free of our sin and our guilt and our worry about the future and our own death. Jesus pays the price so that we don't because we couldn't. That's the gospel. And when you and I get that, that God is so crazy for you, that he will, he's so for you that he would die to make you his, what does that do to us when it comes to words of correction? It so humbles us that we will reflect upon our own condition before we will ever spout a word of correction. Where we will recognize our own challenges, our own need of mercy and of forgiveness and of grace before we will ever mouth off about somebody else's problem that we see. But if Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is doing what? Uttering words of correction in love. And if Jesus on that cross is uttering what? A wordless word of correction to speak to us to our deepest need of correction and always in love and with courage, then what does that do? In his grace and by the love and giving us his spirit, then perhaps we might forget ourselves and love another and offer the word of correction with the same sort of courageous love that he did with us. Words of correction are meant to bring healing. And though we are very capable of acting like a scalpel, having gone through 16 hours of residency rather than the 2,000 that we should have, when Jesus comes to rest in us and we become to believe in him, then we have a rain on our words but we also see a role for them because they're at last riding on the rails of his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness, his courage, and his love. And then we'll be able, able to offer them and to receive them. That's the gospel. And that's how he works healing in us, and that's how he works healing through us. So to end, I've mentioned that song by T-Bone Burnett. Now Kasoria is going to help me sing it. So hear him. Hear these words from this musical that's coming out later this summer. Hear the words that speak to a word about correction, but also hear of both an intimation of the gospel and a longing for it. All in the same song. Everybody wants to know the truth. Nobody wants to hear it. Everybody has to face the end. Nobody wants to get near it. Everybody wants peace. Nobody wants to surrender. Everyone lives in the past. Nobody seems to remember There is nothing long as never As everything burns and grows cold Everybody wants to live forever Nobody wants to get old Everybody wants to be forgiven But nobody wants to confess Everyone longs to hold on to a moment that no one can ever possess. 
Everyone wants to be free, but no one can pay the price. Everyone wants to be heard, when no one has asked for advice. There is nothing as long as never, as everything burns and grows cold. Everybody wants to live forever. Nobody wants to get old. Nobody knows the end of the story. We must wait for it to unfold. Everyone lives facing memento mori, but nobody wants to get old. Nobody wants to get old.